Our first reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 2. Just get my instructions. Beginning at verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So Adam and his wife were, naked, were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now flip over to Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Good morning, everyone. My name's Stephen. I'm one of the ministers here. And um, just a couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of taking a wedding in at Trinity Church Adelaide on North Terrace. And I don't know if you know this, but being the minister at a wedding is the best possible role you can possibly have at a wedding. Nothing beats it. You should give it a go sometime. <laughs> you know, the bride and the groom, they can't enjoy the ceremony, right, because they're too nervous and the guests, they can enjoy it, but they can't see and they can't hear it properly. But the minister, the minister gets the absolute best spot. 
as the bride walks down the aisle, you're standing right there in the middle and you can see everything. You know, sometimes I even, I even sort of sneakily pull out my phone and take a, a photo while I'm there. You get to see everybody turn and smile as the bride comes in. You get to see the, the groom turn and smile and then tear up a little bit. Sometimes I remember to take a tissue. And then as they make their promises to each other up the front, you know, everyone else is straining to hear what they're trying to say, but you're right there next to them. You not only get to hear, but you get to see their faces as they say these promises. These promises that are actually huge. Think about what they're promising as they're up the front. They're saying, I, Stephen, Andrew, George, in the presence of God, take you, Kathy, Lee, Christie, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and cherish as long as we both shall live. This is my solemn vow and promise. I reckon it's hard to capture just how significant, just how huge these vows are. You know, marriage and and weddings on the one hand are so common and, and so ordinary. But on the other hand, there's something that's so unique about a wedding. Something almost otherworldly. When a man and a woman pledge themselves to each other completely, irreversibly. It's like they're writing each other a blank check for love no matter what. They're giving their lives away entirely. It's profound. It's, it's radical in, in one sense. It's almost reckless. And it's anything but ordinary. When I take a wedding, the um, marriage service starts with a, a summary of, of what the Bible teaches about what marriage is. And what I've noticed every time is that I can almost feel the tension in the air during those first five minutes of the service. Because what the Bible teaches about marriage is countercultural. Like, for example, the um, marriage service says that marriage is a lifelong union between a man and a woman where two become one flesh and share in life together. That's countercultural. Then the marriage service says that marriage is the only right place for sex. It says sex is actually for marriage. Sex strengthens the bonds of marriage. And that's countercultural. And then the marriage service says that marriage is about forming a new family. It's the place where children can be nurtured for the good of society. It actually says loving families built on loving marriages are the building blocks of a loving society. And that's also countercultural. Now I find, as I'm sort of running through that first five minutes, that I used to think it was a bit sort of boring, but then I realized people are listening in with a fascination, almost a yearning, but also with bewilderment, and sometimes with hostility even, because often the guests at a wedding see marriage very differently to how the Bible presents marriage, how God sees marriage. Now today, as Sally said, we've come to the the last week in our series that we're calling Uncommon Sense. 
And across this series, we've, we've been looking at some pretty challenging questions. I don't know if you're feeling tired after six weeks of being poked and prodded every Sunday. But we've been considering not only uh, what God has to say, but what our society has to say. What's the kind of common sense answers to the questions that we've been looking at? And then we've been comparing that to God's uncommon sense answer. And we've called it uncommon sense because God's answer often actually seems to clash with the common sense kind of answers that you find. But when you stop and you listen to God and you really go deep into God's answer, I guarantee you that while you might find it, his answer hard, confronting, countercultural, I guarantee if you go deep enough, you'll actually find that God's way works. And it works where all other ways actually in the end will only disappoint. So today we're going to do the same thing. We're going to consider another question, but we're going to do it in the same kind of way. And our question today is, is God's plan for marriage still best? And really we're asking, is God's design of marriage to be between one man and one woman, united for life, is that still what's best for us? So first of all, what's the common sense kind of answer to this question? Well, what we find when we go looking for a common sense kind of answer is that there are lots of answers, right? You know, there's, there's far too many for us to cover. Like, for example, someone might think marriage is a good idea, but they might not think it should be between just a man and a woman. Someone else might think marriage is a good idea, but it's not really got to do, it's got nothing to do with being open to having children. Or it shouldn't necessarily be for life. Or, you know, it's not really the only right place for sex. Now, there's all sorts of variations that we could look at. It's too hard to do that. I want us just to go with the general vibe of what our culture says about marriage. And here's one common sense answer like that from our culture that says God's plan for marriage is not best because it's an outdated institution that really should be done away with. So, for example, coming out of the sexual revolution in the 60s and the 70s, where because of birth control, sex could more easily be separated from having children, the vibe started to be that marriage was less important. And especially when this was combined with second wave feminism, marriage was even seen as oppressive to women. And then with no-fault divorce, when that came in, marriage could be ended relatively easily... And as a result of all these different influences coming out of the 70s and into the 80s and the 90s, there were some parts of society that really strongly saw marriage as an outdated institution, a kind of hangover from the past. And some people even thought that common sense said that marriage would eventually just disappear altogether. And so academics and movies and TV shows and even Comedians, they often mocked marriage at this time as, as something a little bit ridiculous. It was seen as unnecessarily restrictive sexually, and it was seen as a burden likely to be a pretty big disappointment, and even by nature, oppressive to women. Now, it wasn't seen that, that way by everyone, not even by the majority necessarily, or anywhere near the majority. But there was a strong vibe at that time that this was going to be the, the new emerging common sense view of marriage. 
And the, the idea has still continued to grow today. So this year, the ABC's just finished the Australia Talks national survey of, of 60,000 people. And in that, they say 29% of people who participated think marriage is an outdated institution. That, that's pretty high. But even more telling, only 51% disagreed that marriage is an outdated institution. So 49% of people are thinking, yeah, it, it probably is. And the number of people who think marriage is an outdated institution has grown since the last survey they did in 2019. So you can safely say this is still a very strong common sense kind of answer about marriage. And we can probably expect it to keep growing even more as, as a common sense answer. So that's one kind of big vibe common sense answer. But here's another one. God's plan for marriage is not best because it's an outdated institution that should be modernized. This is slightly different. This is really saying that what would be best for us is to make our own version of marriage. It's almost like people realized across the decades that marriage wasn't going away like some people thought it would. People still wanted it. And part of that was probably because People might have been down on marriage, and they often were, but when it reached that point in their lives, usually around 30s, mid-30s, when they started to want to have children, suddenly actually they'd be a bit more positive about marriage because there was a kind of common sense answer that marriage was the best place to have children. That's, that was the vibe, and um, still is the vibe for some. And even though there was a conflicting vibe that said marriage is an outdated institution, this vibe kind of won out for a bit there. So marriage continued. And so somewhere along the line, one common sense answer that's emerged is rather than just ditching marriage entirely, it should be modified. It should be modernized. Now, I imagine if you're over 30, then you would have noticed that something changed in the, the vibe of how marriage was talked about in the 2000s. I don't know if you noticed that. In a way, it was almost like marriage... Around this time, it started to become seen almost as if marriage was a culmination of your relationship rather than the beginning of something new. I don't know if you noticed that. Marriage was almost like an end point of your relationship, um, an end point that your relationship reached, not the final kind of end point, but, but it was a, a milestone. It was where your relationship was held up with pride among your friends and family and the world almost a bit like a I've made it moment or we've made it kind of moment and so people invested massively in, in weddings and they still do apparently the average cost of a wedding in Australia is $36,000 one survey uh, in 2017 amongst the people who participated in that survey found the average cost was $65,000 now, that's a seriously expensive party for something that about half of Australia questions the relevance of. What's going on in our culture with that? Well, it's almost like a wedding had become a celebration of the relationship you had forged. Marriage wasn't so much something you entered into, something you complied with. No, a wedding and marriage was like a stamp of, of approval of, of something you'd made, a legitimization of what you'd created. A wedding and marriage became a celebration of your relationship 
being deemed to be something significant, something that would last, something that others in the government should recognise. And so rather than an overall kind of scoffing at marriage, the vibe became marriage is something that we can renovate, something we can modernise to be whatever works for us. And so around this time, people started saying that a wedding celebration and a marriage should be available to everyone, including same-sex couples. The relationship that they've created should be celebrated too. If I can be recognised for the relationship that I've created that works for me, why can't they be recognised and celebrated for the relationship that they've created that works for them? Now that seemed to be the kind of underlying common sense and the intensity of the desire really took off in the 2000s, didn't it, and and into um, the, the next decade. And suddenly it was framed as a matter of human equality, a basic human right. So there's been quite a shift from marriage being ridiculous and something to be scoffed at to marriage being something that anyone and everyone can have if that's what they want and if that's they can modify it to work for them, then so be it. Now, all the while in the background, most people just carried on being married or being in marriage-type relationships. But even though that kind of carried on as the majority even still there was a fundamental shift to how most people approached marriage or marriage-type relationships. The common-sense approach following the the sexual revolution and feminism and and no-fault divorce, it became that you went into marriage as two individual partners. You entered the marriage-type relationship because the partnership was mutually beneficial And you stayed in the marriage-type relationship because it was mutually beneficial. Now, whether it was marriage or a long-term de facto kind of relationship or a long-term same-sex relationship, that's the general common-sense approach our culture tells us we should take. And it's not like we take vows like that. I don't think anyone sort of says, I, Stephen, in the presence of you all, take Kathy to be my wife because it's mutually beneficial. And I expect that it will remain mutually beneficial. You know, it's not, it's not, um, that's not super romantic, so that doesn't kind of happen. But it's kind of an unwritten principle, an unwritten common sense by which we still operate on. And so common sense says things like live together before you get married. You need to make sure it's going to be mutually beneficial. You need to make sure it's going to work. And the idea that you would follow God's plan is actually seen as irresponsible. Uh, Kathy, my wife, once got told off by a hairdresser because we hadn't lived together before we got married. It's very hard to argue with a hairdresser. <laughs> my mother-in-law got told off by some of her friends because we weren't going to be living together before we got married. It's irresponsible. Now, I know I'm, I'm oversimplifying things. That's what we have to do in this kind of talk. But generally today, the answer to the question is, to the question, is God's plan for marriage still best? You know, whether we outright reject marriage or support same-sex marriage or approach marriage based on it being mutually beneficial, the common sense answer to this question, all of them, they're basically the same. Our culture is basically saying, no, God's plan for marriage is not best. Our plan for marriage is better. 
So now we turn to God's uncommon sense. What's God's answer to this question? And the answer's, the answer's got to be pretty obvious, right? Is God's plan for marriage still best? How could I possibly stand up here and say, no, God's uncommon sense says his plan for marriage is not best. That'd be stupid, right? But in one sense, in just one sense, that's what we see God say. God's uncommon sense is his plan for marriage is best, but there's something even better still. Let me see if I can explain this to you. And to do that, I'm going to take you to Matthew 19. We're going to be there not too long, but stick with me because it's really important to see God's uncommon sense answer here. And we're going to see what Jesus has to say about marriage in Matthew 19. Because in in Matthew 19, Jesus is pretty much asked this question, is God's plan for marriage still best? And he's asked it not by sort of some free love hippie or some kind of feminist or progressive. He's asked it by a strict religious conservative. So look at Matthew 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to test him. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, these guys, they're not genuinely asking the question. They're trying to trap Jesus with this question. They assume that Jesus is going to trip himself up by trying to explain when divorce is okay. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he points them back to God's original plan for marriage. Look at what he says in in verse 4. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? Now, Jesus says, if you want to understand marriage, you, you have to go back to how God made things. His original plan is still best. And the first big thing to get about marriage is it's about diversity. I think we miss that so easily. It's about diversity. It's about a male and a female. But then Jesus adds in verse 5 that God himself said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Jesus says God's plan for marriage is that there'll be unity in diversity. A man, different to a woman, will be united into a new family. And it will be a unity so strong, so complete, that they become one flesh. One physically. One relationally. One economically. One in purpose. And one in the the children that will come from their union. This is a radical kind of unity. And it's clear from Genesis, which Jesus quotes, that marriage was planned by God to be the pinnacle of human relationship. And it was not something that humans made up. It is something you enter into, not something you can modify. We humans are are drawn to modify and, and celebrate marriage while ever it remains beneficial. That's kind of what we celebrate. But Jesus makes it clear that God's plan for marriage is is far more radical and profound than the kind of pale shadow of marriage that we might seek to create. And even though our our world is clearly fallen from that pinnacle that God has set us on, 
And even though marriage is, is fallen from that pinnacle, still Jesus says powerfully in verse 6 about marriage, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Do you see what Jesus has done here? Brilliant as always. Basically, in the space of just a few sentences, Jesus points out to these strict religious conservatives that their plan for marriage is worlds away from God's plan. In their mind, it was common sense that you could divorce your wife when it was no longer beneficial for you to be married to her. They didn't care about the mutual bit. They cared about the self-beneficial bit. But Jesus points out that God's uncommon sense says that marriage is so much more. It's between a man and woman. It establishes a new family. It's about a profound union that's permanent. It goes far beyond convenience or even what's mutually beneficial. It's about lifelong faithfulness and service of another person, giving all of yourself to another. And in just a few sentences, Jesus obliterates their hard-hearted, self-centered approach to marriage. There's something incredibly profound about God's plan, God's design of marriage. There's something that's almost otherworldly about it. Pledging your life to another person, no matter what. To people who are different, not simply different in personality, but different in gender, different in body. Equal but complementary, synergistic. You know, in one sense, the whole is more than the parts, and yet, in another sense, it's less. One plus one equals one. A better one, a stronger one, a life-giving, life-enriching one. That's the unity that God invents. Now, properly understood, the the companionship of marriage, the, the joy and pleasure of marriage, the safe vulnerability of marriage. Someone knows you, someone who knows you, truly knows you, and yet will never turn away from you because that would be to turn away from themselves. That's God's design. That's his uncommon sense. And it's a thing of of, of sheer wonder and beauty. But let's keep going with Matthew 19, because after Jesus paints this this picture of marriage, just after he says that God's plan for marriage is, is still best, the disciples freak out a little bit. They see what a high calling it is, and they see it's not easy at all, it's sacrifice and it's work. And, and they see that in our fallen state, our sinful state, having rejected God and rejected his, his plan for marriage and for all of life, what hope do we have of living up to God's plan? Marriage, lifelong union, no matter what, it has a beauty about it, but in the hands of selfish, fallen people, what hope do we, not, do we have of not turning that into horror? And so the disciples come up with a, a different kind of common sense approach. In verse 10, they say, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to bury. And here's where we start to see that twist that I hinted at before. This is where we start to see that God's plan for marriage is best, but there's something that's even better for us. Because Jesus doesn't tell the disciples at this point, grow up, guys, you know, just deal with your selfishness and get married. He tells them that 
they're almost but not quite onto something. And look at how he reframes it in verse 11. Jesus says, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Jesus says to them, if they can live unmarried, they should. That's what it means to live like a eunuch, someone who's not going to be sexually active. After saying that you know, God's plan for marriage is still best, Jesus is now saying that marriage itself is not the best possible situation we could find ourselves in. Strangely, living like a eunuch, unmarried and not sexually active, for those who can accept it, that's actually better, Jesus says. Now, this is God's uncommon sense, and it's, it's quite baffling, isn't it? And Jesus is not saying here that God thinks sex is bad. You know, God made sex. Jesus has just said that unity, including sexual unity from, um, in marriage, is actually God's good design. You find the key to what Jesus is saying in why he says you might choose to live this way. Not motivated by selfishness, not motivated by, uh, you know, a fear of commitment like the disciples seem to be. But in verse 12, Jesus says, there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying that there's something even better than marriage that's still to come. There's something about the kingdom of heaven that makes it worth giving up on sex and marriage now as good as they are in order to live for the sake of what's to come, the kingdom of heaven. And giving up on marriage isn't for everyone, Jesus says. But what's to come, which is even better than marriage, is for everyone who believes in Jesus. See, later on in Matthew, when some other people try to trap Jesus, he says in chapter 22, verse 30, at the resurrection, so when the kingdom of heaven comes, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. What Jesus is saying is that while marriage was made by God to, to be the pinnacle of human relationship, it was actually never meant to stay the pinnacle. God's plan was always that marriage would point to an even greater relationship. It points to the relationship that we can have with Jesus. Now, I reckon our minds struggle to take this in. We sort of can't make the shift from everything we think about marriage and, and we kind of get stuck on the romance details and, and we really struggle to kind of go, how is that relationship greater and better? Although those of us who've tasted it, I think we know. Think about it this way. It's a relationship of far greater companionship enjoy a relationship where there's far greater safety in vulnerability where jesus knows you truly knows you unlike any other person ever could but will never turn away from you he can't because that would be to turn away from himself that's the relationship that god's people can have with jesus a creator our life's purpose, our Lord, our Saviour. You know, marriage, it's tainted by sin. But what God has planned for us in Jesus is not. 
marriage. It's temporary. But what God has planned for us in Jesus is eternal, eternally knowing him, our greatest and truest friend whose heart is pure compassion for you and whose plan is for us to be more than we could ever imagine. That's God's ultimate design. Marriage, as great as it is, it was only ever like a signpost supposed to point to that ultimate design, that greater relationship. That's God's uncommon sense. His plan for marriage is a thing of sheer wonder and beauty, but his plan for us in Jesus, we cannot even describe in words. So I want to just finish very briefly by asking, so what difference does God's uncommon sense about marriage make for life? And the first thing to say is that it it radically changes the way that you approach marriage, doesn't it? From God's point of view, you enter into marriage. You enter into something that he's designed. And so God's uncommon sense tells us, if you're married, you have a call to selfless love and selfless respect. You've pledged yourself to it. You're not pledged to work for what's beneficial for you or even what's mutually beneficial. You're pledged to love selflessly and to respect the other person selflessly. Now, if you're married, is that how you're approaching it? Would your spouse say that you're actively respecting them in a selfless way? Would they say that you're actively loving them in a selfless way? Ask them. That's what will make a marriage work. Ask them. It's what will make a marriage work, and it's hard work. But it's what will make marriage a joy in the long run. And it's what will make marriage a place of strength. Not a kind of self-absorbed kind of romance. That's, that's not what this is talking about. But a force for good. A, a force for good that can welcome in children and nurture them. A force for good that can serve the world with generosity towards others. That's a very different approach to marriage than being in something while ever it's mutually beneficial. And there's heaps more that, that we, we could say about how God's way works for marriage. Heaps and heaps. But God's uncommon sense actually also has a lot to say to those who aren't married too. So if you're not married, and actually if you are married, it says exactly the same thing here. Married or unmarried, it says that marriage is not ultimate. Marriage is, is not the highest pinnacle. God's plan was always that there'd be a far greater relationship open to us, a relationship of greater joy, meaning, and fulfillment. We shouldn't put too much weight on marriage. It won't fulfill you in the end. But a relationship with Jesus, your creator, your greatest friend, who, who knows you completely and yet will, whose heart is for you nonetheless, who dies for you, who lives for you, that is the one relationship that will fulfill you. I think this is actually uncommon sense that we really need to hear. Because if you don't have that relationship with Jesus, then you're actually missing out. You're really missing out. And you'll keep missing out until you know him, until you come to know him. But if you do have that relationship with Jesus, then God's uncommon sense tells us to be careful not to communicate to each other that marriage is more than it really is. 
Don't you reckon that sometimes Christians and churches are guilty of this? You know, we put on a facade as if um, married life is bliss when it's actually hard work to love and respect each other selflessly. And even if our marriages are wonderful places of joy by God's grace, there's still nothing compared to the, the joy that we face in knowing Jesus. So we need to be careful not to imply to single people that marriage is, is what will fulfill them. And we need to be careful not to imply this to our children as well. You know, I, I used to say to my kids all the time, when you get married, when you get married, but I came to realize that I was setting them up to think their goal in life was to be married. And so now I say, if you get married, because God's goal for their lives and God's goal for our lives is not that we'll be happily married. That's nowhere near big enough for God. He wants more. His goal is that you would know Jesus, really know Jesus, and that you would know him for all eternity. Let me pray. Father, we stand in awe of you, the author of creation. Your design is just phenomenal, even though we, in our hard hearts and selfishness, have constantly are turning our back on your design. And yet you have designed what is truly enriching and wonderful and beautiful for us. Father, forgive us for the ways that we reject your design and ultimately, in doing that, reject you, the giver of all good gifts. Father, we thank you so much for the way that marriage points to that ultimate relationship we can have with Jesus, our closest friend, our saviour, our Lord, who laid down his life that we might live eternally with him and with you. Father, help us to see that that relationship is our ultimate. That relationship will fulfill us. But from the strength of our relationship with Christ, enrich all our other relationships, whether we're married or single. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.